I mean, this issue is, I mean, it, it's, it's far above this binary Republican Democrat. It's far above even the United States. This is a global and a human issue. And we need, like everybody, if we get all, if we all get on the same team, you know, nothing can stop us. Welcome to Eco Alarm, the podcast where we break down the major factors affecting the environment and explore what we can do to help. I'm your host, Imani. And I'm your host, Bo. And today we'll be talking to Sahil. He's a national spokesperson for Republic EN, a conservative group focused on creating the eco right movement. We're so excited to have him on today to talk about conservative approaches to environmental issues. Hey, Sahil, thanks for being with us today. Uh, just to kick off, could you go ahead and introduce yourself? Feel free to include anything that you feel like is going to be relevant for our discussion today. Uh, yeah, sure. My name is Sahil. I'm a, a recent graduate of USC. I, I graduated last year in, in May 2020. And I do a lot of work out in Los Angeles and the larger Southern California from political consulting to real estate to property management and a few other things in between. And of course, environmental activism as we're here to talk about today. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess like if you want to walk us through how you got involved in like environmental sustainability and politics and all that, and also what you're currently a part of and working on. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, I started, I've always been sort of environmentally focused. I grew up in the shadow of of JPL. So um, conversations among friends, you know, always sort of had that patina of, of uh, a scientific focus and, environmental and uh, being environmentally conscious when i when i came into usc i you know i've always been a republican and i i noticed that the the college republicans were not there so so i came in and, and restarted that group and i at one point i was working with uh, another another you know center right group at usc yal young americans for liberty and they had wanted to bring in this guy uh, bob inglis who was a former congressman from south carolina and he runs this organization called Republican, which I am now a, a, a spokesperson for, which is sort of this eco-right awareness group, which, by the way, if you, you guys would love to join all of everyone listening, uh, go to Republican.org, RepublicEN.org, and sign up. They have a lot of different opportunities around the country for you to get involved uh, in being part of the eco-right solution. So I brought him in, you know, late uh, 2018, I believe. And we just got to start, we just started talking. I, I introduced myself to him. I started signing up with them. I became a spokesman. And then suddenly Young Conservatives for Carbon Dividends, or at the time Students for Carbon Dividends, had approached me and wanted to bring me on as a result of my work with Republican, which was mainly sort of speaking engagements or, or writing op-eds or frequently partnering with other environmentally focused groups such as Citizens for a Constructive Tomorrow, CFACT, or the Citizens Climate Lobby, uh, American Conservation Coalition, those kinds of groups. And ever since then, I've just sort of been, been taking one, one sort of opportunity after the other, as far as that goes. I also do a little bit of work on, on energy and the environment just in my actual business, because I am 
a business owner, I do a little bit of wholesale stuff. And a lot of the customers that I work with are foreign governments, primarily in West Africa and Central Africa. And the products that we that we sell to them are mainly sort of infrastructure equipment like solar panels, like meters, like atmospheric water, gen- uh, water generators that are able to generate water in very arid conditions in, in a lot of those countries where access to potable water is very hard uh, or very, uh, very limited rather. So we do a lot of environmental work there because, you know, all of their energy is, is pulled from the dirtiest sources possible and us building up their infrastructure is doing a lot to cut down the future emissions of a rapidly expanding continent. So you mentioned there was kind of a lack of presence of Republican voice at USC campus when you first got involved. Are there any common misconceptions about Republicans and environmentalism in general? Yeah, I'd certainly say so. Uh, the The tenor of the current conversation around environmentalism, at least from a political perspective, is that Republicans don't care. And it's not that we don't care. It's that, well, one sort of it's this issue of climate change is very, very difficult to wrap your head around and really sink your teeth into. There's not a lot of tangible things to work with, right? You can't, you can't see the wind, you can't see the climate changing. Um, So as a result, it ends up going a little bit lower on a lot of people's priorities list because, you know, there are things like taxes, like jobs, like small businesses, access to capital, things that have a lot more of a presence in, in people's everyday lives that, that we're really concerned about. Now, the other thing about this is that the conversation is very inaccessible to many people on the right side of the aisle, because very often there's a lot of, I understand it's a very, it, it can be a very emotional and intense topic, but very often people who don't really have this at the top of their priority list are made out to be more or less evil. And there's a lot of fear mongering around that. Oh, they hate the environment. They hate whatever, which, you know, makes the conversation very inaccessible, but that is changing in a lot of places. And a lot of the work that Republicans do on the environment and on climate change is work that you just don't see because it happens at a local level. And we're really terrible about bragging about it. Uh, For example, what Mayor Kevin Faulkner down in San Diego has been doing as far as his desalination efforts, for example, or or the cities of Lancaster and Palmdale uh, in Los Angeles County. They're great examples of Republican-run cities who are 100% committed to becoming fully sustainable. Yeah, and kind of going off of that, could you walk us through a couple of those solutions or like actions that you've seen from the right that maybe we haven't heard of before or just less common in the discussion? Yeah, so there are there are sort of those those desalination efforts. There's those those other cities that I mentioned, but there's also a, a few. There's a small contingent in the House Republican caucus. Well, it's not that small. Um, there's a contingent in the House Republican caucus that is setting up a lot of different. I can't remember what the committee is, um, but they also have a, a parallel committee in the Senate that are dealing with exactly these conservation issues and working very closely with the American Conservation Coalition. Now, they've come up with various different proposals in the past from 
a carbon tax to a carbon dividends plan, which is backed by um, former, you know, legendary statesman James Baker and, and George Schultz. That currently, that there's a bill along the lines of their carbon tax, carbon dividends proposal that's, you know, going through revisions right now, and it's looking to be on track to be presented to Congress sometime in the next year or two. Uh, now, to, what, what that'll do is, is put a price on carbon, which you know, we can get into now or we can get into a little bit later, and also establish a, a, a dividends plan so that that money is you know, given back to Americans and also emissions are cut as a result of the tax. And those are all Republican-led solutions, um, but they just haven't received the kind of traction because no one pays attention to them. And I guess just for our audience, um, clarifying that, could you explain what exactly a carbon dividend is and how that differs from like a carbon tax? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So when we're talking about putting a price on carbon, because it's, it's obvious that a price on carbon, well, there, that there needs to be a price on carbon because emissions are not currently accounted for within the free market. Those costs are not built into the products. And that's an issue because those are negative externalities. Those are costs that no one is facing the consequence for and is you know, not being solved by the invisible hand of the market. So there are a few different ways to do that. There's a cap and trade solution, which is basically per industry, you, you cap the amount of emissions that they're allowed to give. However, there's a lot of, there's a lot of fine print involved in it. A nice, simpler way to look at it would be a carbon tax, just simply putting a, a tax on the price of carbon uh, contained in products when they're manufactured. That seems to me a great solution, especially compared with a border adjustment tax, because what that means is, so the carbon tax, right, that's only on American goods, but how about the goods that we import? Well, that border adjustment tax will say, okay, China, you've got all this carbon in your products. Well, we're going to tax it when it comes into the United States. So one of two things can happen, right? Either they pay the tax and they just keep emitting, in which case, you know, we got a huge debt, we got a huge deficit, we could use the money. Uh, or the other thing they could do is implement a carbon tax on their own side, because what the Chinese government will say is, well, you know, America is getting all this money, we might as well collect it ourselves. Uh, and that way we aren't giving, we aren't giving our money over to the Americans when it comes into the, when goods come into the port of Long Beach. Uh, and that's happening right now, actually, with Russia, the EU is, is kind of forcing Russia into the position of instituting a carbon tax because they're implementing stricter border adjustment rules on goods coming in from Russia. And Russia is exactly saying the exact same thing. They're saying, well, you know what? I might as well collect that money. Now, one step further to that is what happens to that money? So you've, you've taxed this carbon. Where does that tax revenue go? Most people will not accept this carbon tax proposal if it is not revenue neutral. That's like baseline. Nothing will ever happen if it's not revenue neutral, which means that the money has to go back to the people in some way. Now, there are two main ways of getting the money back to the people. The first one would be the carbon dividends plan, which is to, you know, essentially give everybody back, you know, a dividend, kind of like a UBI proposal almost. Uh, based on, you know, the tax revenue and you just, you give it out on 
however, however the proposal calls for you to calculate it. Now that's great. And a lot of people will accept that because, well, it's money in their hand. But what I think is a better solution and what experts say is a better solution is cutting taxes on the other end. And the chief tax, you know, in the, in the sites is the payroll tax, because that's the tax that is levied on most Americans, especially low-income Americans. And that's one of the taxes that'll make the most difference because it's more money in their pocket every month from their paycheck that they're not paying into these broken you know, welfare systems, which need reform desperately, but nothing's happening there. That money would be much better served in their pocket coming in through their paycheck. Thanks for clarifying on the terminology. That, that was a new concept for me too, carbon dividend. Um, <clears throat> so I guess going along with that, what other solutions do you think we should push for for Americans? Ultimately, I mean, we, you know, desalination is great. It doesn't really have that much to do with the primary problem, which is our energy sources. Now, most of the world is run on fossil fuels and, you know, fossil fuels provide a lot of energy. They are dirty. They're a lot cleaner than most other alternative energy sources, such as, you know, coal and whatnot, but they are still an issue and, and they contribute a lot to emissions. So the step there would be, okay, let's go to alternative energy sources that are a little bit more renewable and sustainable, solar, wind, nuclear. However, market just isn't there. Uh, it's, it's a very easy thing to say, oh, we'll get off of fossil fuels by say 2050, but there's not really so much of a plan for, okay, well, what do you do with all of those people who are reliant on all of these industries? Because it's a lot of them. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of money going on here. Because it's not really a business anymore, the oil industry. The oil industry, every decision is political now. Every decision to open up an oil well has to go through some city, state, federal government of some kind. Which means that it's rather difficult to account for what all of these people are going to do afterwards. Now, when we look at different alternative energy sources, solar, wind. The, mark, uh, the technology isn't there. They're not efficient enough. They're fantastic, but they cannot be the sole solutions to this problem. We need to look at different alternative energy sources as partners, but none of them can be the silver bullet. However, the primary tool in our arsenal of clean energy has to be nuclear. There's absolutely no way around it because solar and wind just don't produce enough. Over the last 20 years, our global total energy usage has doubled. There is no way that alternative energy sources without a nuclear partner can match that. And it's, it's a huge issue, especially because you have two very, very big areas of human development right now going through essentially an industrial revolution. You've got Africa and you've got India and China. All three of those regions are going through massive shifts and massive increases in their energy usage, as well as their emissions. And nuclear has to be the, the, the thing to keep up with that because no other kind of energy source produces that level of energy. However, I'm sure that, that you, your next question would be, 
you know, okay, now that you're talking about nuclear, well, the biggest problem with that is sort of the waste uh, involved. And correct, uh, that is a huge problem. The disposal of radioactive waste has to be very, very tight. Otherwise, you have problems like Fukushima. And then, you know, game's over because uh, you got an entirely irradiated place. And, you know, who cares how much energy you're producing if nobody can live there? Now, on that front, there have actually been a number of great innovations in especially Scandinavia with the KBS project. And, and in Sweden and Finland, they've actually got two, two new technologies of waste disposal that they, they have a facility where they've dug down, I believe, 500 meters into bedrock. And they have these, these copper containers with a steel insert to contain the fuel. And they're dumped down there. And the copper is thick enough, or there's, I'm, I'm not sure of the exact specifications, but essentially the container is such that it will contain the waste much longer than the waste will take to fully decay and become non-radioactive. And those, those solutions, while still, you know, in their infancy, are really, really promising. And that may facilitate the acceptance of nuclear energy into more and more countries in the near future. However, right, there's also the problem of, of production. Nuclear energy, one, it takes a lot of time to produce, but also we just don't have enough ways of producing it. Fission reactions are rather dangerous, and there's not a lot of materials that we're able to use in fission reactions with uranium and whatnot. Uh, thorium would be one. What we use tritium would be one, I believe, actually the original like exit signs and buildings were made from tritium because they, it glows. However, there's just not that much of it. And it's very, very expensive, which is, in my personal opinion, the reason why we can't really do much as far as advancement in nuclear fission technology until we go back to, until we go back to the moon and until we have we can you know, deal with a global problem by looking at the globe from you know, a bird's eye view. That means fun, refunding the ISS, that means building a new ISS and improving infrastructure out there and going back to the moon because the moon surface is covered in helium-3, which is a fantastic, substitute for materials like thorium for materials like like tritium in fission reactions and it's also non-radioactive which eliminates the waste problem gotcha and kind of going off that waste issue i'm wondering what your thoughts are on like nuclear fusion as an option because a lot of people are touting that i mean i know it's like extremely expensive right now but I guess as a future solution to kind of eliminating that waste problem and still getting a lot of like high quality energy. I, you know, it, it would be great. It requires us to really get our skates on now and start, you know, pushing through projects because it takes a lot of money and more importantly, a lot of time to get these plants up and running. But once they are, the, the amount of clean energy that they produce will exponentially outpace anything that other alternative renewable energy sources are going to be able to produce. And it will be a nice complement to them in, in our larger clean energy arsenal. But we need to get it done now. Otherwise, we may not, uh, we may not have that chance. 
So another quick follow-up to what you just said about nuclear energy, how it's carbon-free, there's little footprint and high output, it's efficient. But when you talked about developing regions, like you mentioned India, China, Africa, how if America as a developed country still runs on fossil fuels, how would it be feasible for these countries to implement these power plants? What are some solutions that you think will make that future possible? That's a great question. In fact, I found it to be much easier implementing these kinds of solutions in places like Africa, India, and China, rather than developed countries like America. And the reason for that is because all of our energy infrastructure here in America is already built. It's everywhere, Um, but it's all decaying. And it was all, you know, built in the thirties, it's outdated. However, in a lot of places in these developing countries, the infrastructure isn't decaying, it doesn't exist, which means that there's nothing you have to get rid of before you start putting something new in, which really, really helps, for example, when we're modernizing the power grid uh, and implementing smart grid, microgrid technology that allows for the two-way transfer of energy along one of those lines and the, and the transacting of energy between, of surplus energy between households. That kind of system is much, much, much easier to do in in Africa, in India, in China than it is in, for example, California. I was working on one of those projects out in Oakland. It took three years to get anything meaningful done just because there was so much existing material that, and an existing infrastructure that we had to deal with. Yeah, it's, it's, it's much easier to do out there. Uh, and, and it provides a lot of promise because those are the areas where the largest problems are gonna come in the next 30, 40 years because Africa is growing exponentially. India and China, they're exploding. They've got so much, so many people and so much untapped capital. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think that's why even with the current COP26 that's going on, a lot of these countries are missing from the conversation when they're contributing like so much to our world's future, honestly, when it comes to the environment. And with that, I know a lot of people that are there right now are discussing different alternatives. Obviously, no, if we knew what the right answer was, we would not be in the situation that we are now. So (laughs) I'm wondering how you feel. I know we talked about cap and trade, carbon tax. I think the only other, I guess, big one that people are touting are the Green New Deal. And so I'd love to get like your take on that or any other solutions that you've seen and what kind of factors do you think we're often not considering when it comes to the environment? Well, uh, as far as as far as the Green New Deal goes, I mean, there are a few different Green New Deals out there, right? Because a lot of people like to use that, let that name for different massive proposals. But anything, you know, sort of like a Green New Deal, especially, for example, the one that Congressman Ocasio-Cortez uh, proposed, it's it's a bit like, I mean, it's, it's sort of in the name. It's, it's a bit like the New Deal. It's very all-encompassing. There's a lot of extra things thrown in there that have nothing really to do about the environment. It has to do with, for example, job security and things, which, you know, sure, those are issues that you can tackle 
you know, separately, but adding them to this, adding, adding them to these environmental proposals almost acts like a poison pill because suddenly you've got, you know, so many different ways that people can start corrupting the system, can start corrupting the language and so many different pressure points for people to argue about and places where deadlock can erupt from. So that's sort of the primary reason why something like a Green New Deal is, is not helpful in, in this regard. But primarily what, what people aren't really talking about is, is just mostly nuclear. Because there aren't, while India and China are increasing their nuclear capacity, places like the UK, Japan, Germany, France, which is 70% nuclear, they're all cutting their plants. And the resulting loss in clean energy production is going to be massive. It might actually dwarf the amount of clean energy that we're able to, the additional clean energy that we're able to produce over the same period of time from other sources. So that's, I, that's the one primary, like, if you don't get this right now, you're going to have a lot of problems in the next 10 years. And that's the one, you know, talking point that, not many of these countries seem to be concerned about. Yeah, for sure. And I think whoever is nuclear energy's like PR team is not doing the best job <laughs> because <laughs> I think a lot of it um, does come down to just like public image. I mean, they think of Chernobyl, you got Fukushima, like, and all those are terrible things that happen, like no doubt about it, but mm -hmm. I think a lot of the hesitation just comes from a lot of misconceptions around the energy source and I guess just a generational thing as well. I mean, the closer you are to like a Chernobyl or Fukushima, I guess the more apprehensive you are about nuclear and its future. But yeah, I guess speaking of like the future with where we are now and seeing a lot of younger people being more involved with the environment, I guess, where do you see kind of the future of the Republican Party when it comes to environmental issues and maybe how we can potentially work more together to combat it? Well, you're already seeing a lot of sort of renewed interest in environmentalism and in, well, really more so conservation within the Republican Party, but it's all happening in pockets right now. A lot of things, a lot of things, are going to change about the party in terms of the way that it postures itself on these kinds of issues once the midterms pass. If, as is sort of expected, Republicans do take back majority in the House, you're going to see a lot of more moderate or environmentally focused congressmen within the caucus make a lot more noise. And I, the chatter I'm hearing from the Hill is that Democrats, when they're going to be put in the minority next year or in two years, they're willing to play. So I think we may see, we may end up actually seeing a, a you know, a watershed Republican environmental bill in the next five years or so. I know, I hope so. <laughs> that would be, I'd love to see it. I guess just to close off, we kind of talked about the future, but um, for any listeners that are um, interested in kind of the work you do, where can they get involved or learn more about the intersection of conservatism and uh, the environment? Yeah, well, I mean, for starters, right, 
you guys could get involved with any of the groups that I'm involved with. So for example, Republic N, which is republicen.org, Young Conservatives for Carbon Dividends, because they're the ones actually really pushing for the more so the legislative solution to, for example, carbon pricing and environmental, environmental issues. Uh, but most importantly, join your local groups that are on the ground that are actually doing you know, the hands-on work, like for example, trash cleanups or recycling projects. Uh, there are local veteran work for recycling group everywhere. Uh, I'm sure that there's one in, in your area if you're in, you know, at least a metropolitan area. And, you know, yeah, really just join your, join your local groups, do the work yourself. It like, it's a lot of people have this, have this notion that they need to be told what to do in order to do it. But like, you know, if you want to get involved, you don't have to wait for somebody to tell you, hey, get involved, just go do the work. It, it's not hard. Seek out those communities around you because they exist and they're everywhere. Yeah, and I think that was a great way to close it out. And just for any listeners, like if you're intrigued by the ideas, but you're like, oh, well, I don't really know if I identify as a Republican. I don't really think that matters at the end of the day. I mean, if you are really believing in carbon dividends and you want to go ahead and join that, like, I wouldn't let the like political binary we've created stop you from doing that. So. Oh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Because I mean, this issue is, I mean, it, it's, it's far above this binary Republican Democrat. It's far above even the United States. This is a global and a human issue. And we need like everybody, if we get all, if we all get on the same team, you know, nothing can stop us. Yeah. And that's why I can't thank you enough for coming on. I think this was like a really important conversation to have. And it was so great hearing like a new perspective on things. So yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, well, thank you guys for having me. Okay, that'll wrap up our episode for today. For more information on EcoAlarm and resources on topics covered in this episode, follow us at EcoAlarm Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Thank you guys so much for listening. Tune in every other Friday and we'll see you next time. Bye.